0: by empathizing with the other, you understand first and foremost, who are we solving the problem for before we project who we are and what we need out of it. And then on top of it, you layer the idea of dyslexic thinking. It's really a framework that we apply to everything we do, you know, as we relate to one another, as we collaborate, and as we execute in the market for our clients.
1: October is Dyslexia Awareness Month. And we were recently introduced to Gil Gershoni, who's on a mission
2: to help us all recognize dyslexia as a creative superpower. Gershoni runs an influential agency that's been reshaping brands with the power of dyslexic design thinking for decades. You know, one in five people have dyslexia, and there are many other kinds of neurodivergent thinkers out there. So we hope this bonus episode opens your eyes and ears to other modes of creative thinking. Thanks for listening. We'll
1: return to the conversation after this quick break. And now back to the show. Gil Gershone, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. So happy to be here. Gil, let's maybe start from the top. You run a design and branding agency based in San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about your agency and the type of work that you do.
0: Absolutely. So we are a branding agency, and we're coming up on our 30-year anniversary, so we've been doing it for a minute. Our agency is both in San Francisco and in Dallas, but we work nationally and internationally. Our primary focus is around intersections of strategy, ideas, design, branding, and execution. We, by design, work with a lot of different industries because we believe that the common thread is. The end user. So we come with that sort of approach to empathy and understanding the end user. Users don't see brands as the channel. They really see their day in a life. So how do we use that knowledge from consumer goods to spirits to banking to content and learn from those experience and help to sort of design and innovate within those programs and projects? One of the things that our agency is very proud of is that we are taking uh, the neurodiversity mindset, using different ideas, different people, different modalities, different backgrounds to create and produce what we do.
1: This part is, is particularly interesting to us, is your focus on neurodiversity and dyslexia. And you grew up with dyslexia, something you
0: still are working with today, right? Absolutely. So to kind of give a little bit insight is that dyslexia did not happen to me. It's the way my brain is wired. You don't get over it. You maybe get acquainted with it and you learn like anybody else to get to know yourself throughout the process of life. So for me, I was born with dyslexia. I was detected. I had it in early school. So the first few years was quite challenging to learn in a more linear way. As soon as they discovered that I was dyslexic, we found other modalities of learning that I was able not only to understand the content, but thrive through the lessons and information. And over the years, really embraced the way I think to really create it to be my gift. And I credit that to pretty much everything I do, from work to life and everything in between.
2: So there's a number of sort of subtopics we want to talk about around neurodivergence and dyslexia. But maybe let's start with creativity. What influence does dyslexia have on your creativity?
0: Maybe it'd be good for me to kind of walk through what are the traits that dyslexics are very strong at and how do then I take that into my Design, problem-solving, strategy, and execution. So dyslexics are very good at visualization. You know, it's very easy for me to see complete detail in my mind and be able to understand how it affects both the idea, the design, the brief, the execution, the economics, and distribution of the idea almost in the blink of an eye. And I can really rely on that over the years, that sort of gets stronger and stronger as you focus on it and develop it. Allows me to really imagine opportunities. I can see situations, again, that may not be apparent to the eye and find out where is the discord or the negative space or the lack of flow in the execution that we can focus on and take that problem and turn it into a solution. For dyslexic, often because we compensate or overcompensate for maybe some of the things we're not as strong as, You know, we tend to be quite good communicators because we really focus and over almost hyper-develop other skills in order to be able to relate and communicate. And through that and seeing those kind of disparate worlds helps us to create reasoning, to understand if I change this thing here, it would create a ripple effect and create the desired outcome that we're looking for, you know? So it's very easy for us to see these connections, It's also easy for me to be able to listen with my full body, all my senses, and hear the empathy in the other person, in the category, in whatever somebody else is doing, and not only hear their words, but hear some of the sentiment, the challenges, the reasoning of how and why they're doing it to be able to help coach and move the overall team, organization, execution to where... It creates a better balance and outcome. And I think all of it is sort of tied with this idea that I'm so curious and I'm always looking to explore. You know, because I don't think linearly, I'm always looking for things and understanding things and explore things anew. You know, as a young boy, dyslexia kind of teaches you to be comfortable with what we often call failure because it was very hard for me to read. Because when I look at, Letters, to me, they're negotiable symbols. you know. So I see through the letters, above the letters, all at the same time. I can twist them around. So in one sense, the disability is that it's hard to string the letters together and read the word. But if you take the same, what I call hyperability, and you apply it to just about anything else, which is dyslexia thinking... I can innovate, I can think, I can ideate, I can collaborate in ways that are different than this more traditional thinking process. What
1: was it like going through that process as a child? You described having to get comfortable with failure because there's a certain way of learning in large groups and you have to sort of conform to the rules, the social contract there in schools and so forth. And I presume it was probably felt like there's something broken or something wrong with me. And then as you start to learn more about this, there's a change in your understanding of the world, yourself. What was that process like, who you were as a child and who you became as a, as a young man?
0: I was born in Israel and I was a child of the sort of early seventies, you know, and so dyslexia was not really a common understanding. And uh, often first and foremost is that no matter how hard I tried, I was barely average. Because, you know, it's like I said, it's trying to teach me to do things that are not natural to the way that my mind work. And in order to try to make me conform, they tried to move me from my natural habitat into ways that I was just struggling because it's not the way I process. So, and I think this is a common thing, talking to hundreds of dyslexic in many ages, many phases of their career, it's often a common story around being labeled stupid and lazy. And that stigma is something that a lot of us have to overcome over the years. The labeling of learning disability is another one, you know. So, you know, you start from a deficient mindset. The fact that this is, you know, something that, um, you know, you do whatever you can to try to overcome. Now, some of the challenges during those early years was that I learned how to, Properly avoid reading in public. So what I would do, I'd be sitting in the class with 20, 30 students. I would know on average how long a student would read. I would look at the paragraph. I would know exactly where my spot is. I would ask to be excused two students before me, leave the class to go to the restroom, count in the restroom, and arrive two students after me. And I got very good at that. Now, as a child, you know, at six, seven, eight, nine, you can imagine how stressful that is, how overwhelming that is. But you take the same early training, it taught me how to be aware of my environment, how to assess time, how to be right brain, left brain, and how to relate to the situation in a much more sensitive way. You know, so early years, it was very challenging. But over the years, as I've learned what's the gift of my dyslexia, What's my, not disability, but what my, I love to coin, the hyperability? I start to lean in not trying to change it, but have a relationship with it. you know. And with a lot of support from my family, especially those early years, but as it progresses, I got to high school and university and beyond, I've learned how to feed my dyslexia and how to regulate it. So when I needed to see a very, very fast and saturated where I can turn it to 11, and whenever I needed to slow down, you know, to relate to other and to make room for more ideas or others' way of thinking, then I can kind of regulate that. And I think a lot of that came from those early years of learning to cope and in some sense trying to, um, as I said, just, just to be normal and average. But, you know, part of expertise is obsessing over a single thing over a long period of time. And I think that as a dyslexic, by circumstance, I was forced to do that. And I think the gift, as I'm atured, was phenomenal.
1: I like that you use the term a hyper ability. I have kids who are have ADHD. And you know for a while, that was really like a challenge for them to kind of navigate school. And then we started to see these incredible abilities of like memory and and how that energy is pushed into different areas that gives them superpowers that other people don't have. And I've seen that in a lot of other people. In fact, Eli and I have been having conversations with a lot of super talented creative people and learning about their creative process. And there is a common theme that many of them have some sort of neurodivergent mind. They've got a similar story as you that in their childhood, you know, they weren't really understood. They didn't really conform or fit in in that learning process. But then they realized that they could kind of do their own thing. Was there a moment where you realized, wait a second, this isn't a disability. I have this hyper ability over here. Was there a moment where you
0: saw that and it flipped the way that you thought of yourself? Yeah, I don't know that if there was one incident or one moment that that sort of shifted, And maybe it's because I don't live in the linear construct often. I mean, I can relate and I can work with it and I've learned how to produce and collaborate in that way. But because I'm often in a more dimensional world, more spacious world, ideas and times are really living in a non-linear in that sense. So I think that there wasn't a single moment, but I think it's incremental over time. For me... It's not about getting to the destination. I've learned to move through the steps and the process. You never arrive. And frankly, the day I will arrive will probably be the end of curiosity, the end of play, the end of ideas, the end of design. Like I never want to arrive. So for me, it's continuously to exploring and expanding and learning different ways to embrace it, different way to relate to it ways to put language to it so I can understand for myself what is going on? Like, you know, how do I share this? How do I relate to it? Because trying to change it usually is where you create resistance. You know, then you have a lot of tension, a lot of, you probably see it with your children. It's like when you're thinking very fast and the world asks you to think slower, it's so hard to do that. But often people that think very fast can be hyper-focused when they're immensely interested. And it's an amazing contrast. How does that happen? That in most scenarios I'm bored, I'm distracted, I'm not interested. But put me with a topic that I am like fascinated in, and I can focus, laser focus, for ten hours, you know, and be prof- so proficient with what I care for. So the question is, why is that a disability? Why is it not just the way we work as? People, you know, we all on some form of spectrum. There's no one way, and if we embrace those different ways of thinking, then we're able to then bring that to the collective, collaborative, you know, mindset. You know, back to question about that moment, I think I credit a lot to my family that they always encouraged me earlier on to try. That really failure was not trying. If you didn't like it. Or you weren't good at it. Well, you just gain an insight. You know, maybe I wasn't good playing a certain instrument. I wasn't good with certain activities. But now you know, and that was a gift from the experience. But trying to not play with that or holding back is what I've learned as a young child was the truly failure, which you know taught me what it is to take a risk, to just embrace change. You know, consistently, and I think that. The only concept is change. So it got me very comfortable being on the edge of ideas and innovation because this uncertainty is the world I live in and I'm very comfortable with it. So I think that to your question, I think it's an incremental. I'm still going and exploring and expanding my understanding of myself and therefore others. But I think from a very young age, it was just being supported with many different types of thinking and creativity and ideas. You know. So
2: we've touched a little bit on the creative aspects of your your life and your career. And just before the call, we were talking about some very well-known entrepreneurs that also happen to be dyslexic, like Charles Schwab, Bill Gates, Richard Branson's one. And you already talked about dealing with failure and how that's helpful in your creative life, and I assume also in your entrepreneurial life as a founder of a very long-running agency. What are some of the other traits that have been helpful in
0: entrepreneurship? Well, I think it's important to know, and I think to your comment about how many dyslexic, it's really one in five are dyslexic. If you think about it, that's a huge amount of dyslexics, you know, and and I would say that about 35% of US entrepreneurs are dyslexic. So there's quite a bit of us out there that using some of the dyslexic, you know, mindset to bring it to their entrepreneurship sort of endeavors, you know, it's also important to know that Most dyslexic are different from each other. So there's not one dyslexia or one type of dyslexia. It's a spectrum like everything else, you know. But I think often what I see with dyslexics, and this is something that, you know, comes naturally to us, is that we look at the world from a different perspective. You know, it's very easy for us to see everything is negotiable. You know, and it's that's one of sort of my principles around how to think like a dyslexic, that you don't need to be a dyslexic to deploy it. Is like, how do you see everything is negotiable? Because as dyslexic, everything is negotiable. The letters are negotiable. The construct are negotiable. The limitations are negotiable. And the first thing that somebody tells me you cannot do that, my first reaction is, who said so and why? You know, and it always sets me on this sort of trajectory. I was like, oh, really? I'm going to prove you wrong, because I think like a dyslexic, and I'm going to work around the problem, beneath the problem, through the problem, to find a way to change and innovate. So I think that's a very common dyslexic mindset, you know? And again, you're taking letters are negotiable, harder to read. Everything is negotiable. What amazing approach to relating to one another and solving problems. You know, it's really looking at how you take the possibility as something that's negotiable you know so it's not about compromise as we collaborate is working off each other you know often i work with my team and our clients to realize that if we don't arrive at the solutions together if we don't arrive at the sort of summit together then what's the point you know, it's really lonely to arrive to the view to the top of the mountain on your own. It was like, where is everybody else? So for us, it's really around as dyslexic and being entrepreneur is to bring everybody along, understanding their strength, their differences, how to work together as a team, and how to make the outcome you know better than our individual perspectives.
2: It's funny that you talk about negotiation because one of my uncles, who I'm very close to, is a very successful businessman. Retired now, but he taught me uh, my kind of one and only negotiation tactic, which is he says, if you have a job offer or something, you know, along those lines, where you need to negotiate, all you have to do is say, "Is that the best you can do?" And unfortunately, <laughs> we taught this oh to boy. my children, and now they use it against us. All. <laughs> I,
0: I I love that. It reminds me of a story. You know, I was very close to my grandfather as a little boy, and he was always says, "Go play with the kids," and I was like, "No, but I want to hang out with you, Grandpa." You know, he's uh, he was born you know, in Argentina and then migrated to Israel. And he was, now we refer to as an entrepreneur, but at, back in the day, he was just a hustler. He was just a people person and he knew how to make relationship. And through those relationships, he was, you know, an entrepreneur that grew, to your story, a very successful business. And the one thing I always love to go with him is in the morning when he would make his rounds, you know. As Mundane as going to the farmer's market or to meet one of his clients, he always remembered their names, their families, their children, if one of the children graduated college or was taking a test or won a sport tournament, he always remembered by name. And I remember one time we went and we um, went to the market and he was buying some apples and he started to negotiate with the guy behind the counter the price. I was like, it's an apple, man. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. By negotiating, I'm creating relationships. I'm showing the other person that I care. I'm having a moment of communicating. I'm learning about them, and they're learning about me. Certain cultures, there is a, this idea of a morning price that if you're the first customer, both for the merchant and for the customer, you're setting good luck for the rest of the day because you're starting on the right foot with a positive relationship, which then would attract more of those. So he says, by me getting even you know, a nickel off the apple, I'm giving the merchant a good luck for the rest of the day, you know, because he's starting early with good optimism and luck. But what it goes to, I think, a lot of it is about creating the relationship and creating the empathy for the other person. And if you understand where the other person is, then you can really truly create a relationship that is mutual. If that's the best you can do, the question is, is that the best we both can do? Because nobody wants to have one over them. That's not long term, you know. But if you want to create customers or audiences or that are going to have affinity to your brand, it has to be long term and mutual. And it really comes from that, you know, I would be happy to give you a break on those Apple because I know you're going to come every morning and get more fruit from me or an iPad or whatever that is, right? So um, I love the learning from my grandfather, from your uncle, from my relatives.
1: Talk to us about dyslexic design thinking and how it fits into your process.
0: So dyslexic design thinking is really a collaborative creative process that in its heart, taps into divergent thinking and brings non-linear ideation to generate unexpected ideas, you know, in order to find, you know, solution to problems it really starts with dyslexia, but it really incorporates all mindsets, both neurodivergent as well as neurotypical. And I think that's kind of at the heart of it. It's not like competition, but how do we co-create? How do I ask questions and you jump off of my question and together we play? And that exchange of ideas allowed us to come to mutual outcomes. And the process of it, it helps us manifest original ideas. I find that when we often slow down, in this process, we arrive quicker to the outcome. You know, part of the dyslexic design thinking is that we're taking the idea of design thinking, which is rooted in this sort of five steps or phases of empathizing, defining, ideating, prototyping, and testing, and often repeating, but by empathizing with the other, you understand first and foremost, who are we solving the problem for before we project who we are and what we need out of it? and then on top of it you layer the idea of dyslexic thinking which is rooted in visualization imagination communication reasoning empathizing or connecting and exploring and that sort of Venn diagram is kind of where this dyslexic design thinking falls you know it's really a framework that we apply to everything we do you know as we relate to one another as we collaborate and as we execute in the market for our clients
1: We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to UpliftDesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U P L I F T. Desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H-E-L-P, dot com, slash design better. And now, back to the show.
2: Bill, you know, I'm wondering, you know, you've achieved success in your career, but I'm sure there are points where you struggled. And in addition to the successful relatives and friends, I have some friends that do have dyslexia or other neurodivergent, you know, conditions and are struggling a bit with their careers. Is there any advice you'd give
0: to folks along those lines to help them out where they are right now? You know, it's a process, and I would first start by saying that everybody is different. Some people love to refer to their differences as a disability and they have a relationship with it. Others find that it's a superpower. Some people feel the superpower is too strong of a word because it's not as inclusive to their full selves. I think for me, that's why I kind of lean on the idea that it's a hyper-ability. It's really both. We all have both of those sides, you know? What's the relationship we have with them that sort of goes to the heart of my approach to embracing my differences? So For me to give somebody some guidance around how to move toward that place for themselves is to first ask themselves, what do they love to do? What gives you joy? What gives you contentment for the only reason of that joy and contentment? That's a huge indicator. What do you need to lean toward? You know, because At the end of the day, when you start leaning toward those things and you start looking for those things in your daily life, you start to collect that feeling, that understanding of what's your strengths. And the more you can collect those small little moments of insight, the funny thing about them that they grow. The more you look for them, the more you see them, the more you see them, the more they find themselves, the more they start to sort of attract you toward things that give you that feeling of belonging and feeling understood. And from that place, you're able then to communicate to whoever it is you communicate to, who you are and embrace that and play with that. You know, Some people are very comfortable in saying, you know, these are the things I need in the work environment. Some other people are... Feel so comfortable, so then me hiding behind those things. I've learned over the years that as soon as I acknowledge when it's appropriate, those situations people embrace that, you know, because I come to it with that strength based model. So, your reaction would be, How can I support you? And often, what I tend to need in my working environment affects everybody around me in a positive way. In our agency, we create a lot of different spaces for different types of working styles and modalities so some of our designers some of our strategists or writers need quiet environment so we have rooms that are white quiet you can dim the light you can focus for some of our other team there's room that everything is full of stimulations and color and music and everything is a whiteboard every room has you know maker spaces if that's how you would like to express yourself And then we bring everybody together and we kind of mind meld in the different environments together because sometimes the strategists that like to strategize and work and research quietly, when they get immersed in the more stimulating environment and they get to print their strategies and the design team prints some of their ideas and we put it on the walls and we write against it and we put strings between them and all of a sudden they can get a different perspective to what they're working on and vice versa. And that, I think, comes from to your question about what can you do to embrace your differences? You know, It's addicting because now the strategist wants to print everything and write on the walls and draw and they move some of the research or some of the visualization or some of the ideas or they rip one idea and glue to another one and that inspires the designers or the art director to sort of jump off of their back. So there's a lot of this sort of co-playing that happens as you embrace your different modalities.
1: Gil, when you're hiring and looking for new talent, is neurodivergence, the different perspectives, is that part of your screening process, who you're looking for? Absolutely.
0: You know, for me, I really thrive in the sort of childlike curiosity. You know, I really embrace, as you just heard about how to embrace your differences, the actionable play in everything we do that curiosity. Are you willing to be wrong and celebrate that? Are you willing to explore ideas that moves you into the edge that makes you not so comfortable, but you're willing to sit in it and find new opportunities because you're willing to see it for the first time again. So when we're interviewing, we're looking for people to join the team. Often we get people that have one or two or three degrees, been in the industry for a long time, really creative, can problem solve, know how to execute commercially under the pressure of, you know, the deadlines and the projects. But are they willing to be coachable after 25 years in the industry? Are they willing to be open-minded to find a solution that comes from a different place that maybe is not as expertise, but is true and they can pivot And when we find those individuals and we find that sort of spark, we just hire them even though if we're not looking because I want everybody on the team to have that sort of mindset because that curiosity is what it's all about and the world is changing so fast. The work we do is in so many different industries and we need people on the team that are willing to bring that sense of play and creativity to everything we do to get those ideas out there. So. That's a little bit what we look for often when we're looking for our team players to join our organization. Yeah,
2: are there any books that have helped you understand neurodivergence better, or helped you just collaborate generally with people who have different ways of thinking?
0: Yeah. So let's see. So at first, I would say that books for dyslexic is not the preferred medium. Although I'm avid reader but I found other ways to read information. And often I do read in the written form, but I also love to listen to books. It's so easy these days to convert anything to audio. So you'll find me taking a hike and listen to you know, patents or white papers or research about different topics or proper books or you guys love your podcasts. You know, like any things that has content in it. So I find that really, really inspiring. For dyslexic often, I think that it's really meaningful to listen to other dyslexic stories about their process challenges and how they overcame and successes. So there's many, many podcasts out there. My podcast, Dyslexic Design Thinking, is really goes to the heart of how do we thrive in the intersection of dyslexic creativity and innovation in many different industries. The dyslexic advantage. Is a phenomenal book that just released its third edition that really talks from more of a research base and observation around some of the advantages and the way dyslexic think in many different industries. And it's a book that I highly recommend for people that are looking to sort of learn more about the gift of dyslexia and how to apply it into their daily life. We had a book that just came out a few years ago that is called The Big Picture Book of Amazing Dyslexics and the Job They Do. And it's a wonderful book about dyslexic from all over the world. That are telling their stories, both in pictures and also in written form, around how they overcame and what are some of their dyslexic thinking gifts and how they apply it to their industries. So, those are a few that I can recommend that I find very insightful, very meaningful, and great reads from that perspective. If you're young out there, there's a few organizations that I think are doing a tremendous job around education and support. There is an organization called understood.org that does some great content and information and support for young folks out there that are looking to not only find community, but get some guidance agency around what they may need, how to support their you know early education and beyond. How do you find out
1: what's going on? So what you're describing actually sort of planted a question in my head. So when I was a kid, I just did not read. I didn't like to read, I wasn't a fast reader. And once I figured out I could listen to books, I can't stop, like I go through so many books now. But how do you go about finding whether or not, you know, your brain is kind of wired a different way and how to optimize for that?
0: Reading was not a fun task in my childhood and depends what I read now in the written form is more or less, but it's not the easiest way to understand the content. You know, Often, the learning is about curiosity. If you learn to be curious, the rest is mediums. So I know it's important, you know, and not to say that it's not important to write or to read because it's so important to understand and to figure that out for yourself. And it takes, the early years are very, very challenging. Personally, we're very, very, very hard times. But when I've learned over the years to be curious, to learn how to learn in your own way, then I think to your point, it's just addicting. You can't get enough of it, you know, if it was through films, if it's through audio, if it's through just like the physical world, if it was just, you know, getting out there and taking a hike and being present, you know, and, and seeing the environment around me from that curious mindset was definitely a huge gift. And then as you get older, not to forget. Not to forget that sort of inner child relationship that is so important to creativity in the process, you know. When is the last time you were like sort of pleasantly surprised? You know, as you get older, it's like, well, you know, I remember my son often loves to open his Pokemon box. And I remember like just the sheer knowing that he has the box, he didn't even open it yet. And for the first year, I'm like, I don't get it, man. You know, nine out of 10, you already have those cards. And there's one card that's the one that's going to like be the one that he looks for. But that astonishment, and then it dawned on me one time is like, isn't that enough? That he is so excited that he's going to have this moment of reveal that's going to give him that feeling of, of exploration, of what's in it, what's to come, and not knowing and almost suspending that feeling was something that, you know, he taught me a lot about. Like, how do I bring that to everything I do and try to keep that fresh and young as we age, you know? And I and think a lot of it is just embracing the different mediums and get interested in the content and finding a way to play with it, you know, to find a way to do it in a different way than you did. In our agency, we've started, it was kind of during COVID, but now we embrace it all the time, is the idea of creative interventions where we ask our team to take an hour Sometimes twice a week, you take half an hour, an hour here and there and do something that you've never done before and then come back and report back to the rest of the team. So some of the exercise may be go and take a hike for half an hour and take photographs and then come back and tell us a story about your experience or find a random object and take a photograph of it as if it was, you know, fine art and tell us why you saw it from that different lens. When we are physical in the agency, on occasion, we would do a one-minute dance party. And everybody has to join, you know, if you're extroverted, introverted. If there is a dance party on the sound system, everybody gets up and dances. Because those are the kind of practices that allow us to bring that pleasantly surprised mindset to play and to be curious. And it goes full circle to your questions about, you know taking in content and learning is that you learn and you develop the muscle of curiosity. And then you apply it to any medium, you know. And then it's easier to read because you're interested. So then you have to overcome a little bit some of the mechanics of it, but the story behind the mechanics is what makes you really thrive. And, you know, the thing with dyslexic is when I understand what the story is, I see a thousand possibilities. You know, but if I try just to understand the sentence... It's so hard for me to get to what's underneath it. So, how do you get underneath that? You know, that's kind of how I tend to play with content and reading and curiosity, you know.
2: Gil, speaking of things that you're reading, things that spark your curiosity, what's inspiring you right now? Are there books or podcasts or movies, anything It doesn't have to be work related?
0: You know, what inspires me is the act of being inspired because. I, as a dyslexic, I see everything for the first time again. Now I can resist it and find it to be maddening, or I can embrace it and realize that it's truly a gift, you know. But I have to regulate within it. You know, sometimes it's overstimulating. So then I need a quiet space. So when I feel overwhelmed, I take a hike. You know, 10 minutes into the hike, I feel like a different person. I, I really embrace over the years yoga. And moving my body and being embodied, learning how to be fully physically present, how to learn to use my breath as a tool to get more space within my world, how to empty so I can be commercially creative. It's very difficult to be creative if you're saturated, you know, it's never half full or half half empty. It's always full when you have a creative block. But if you always learn how to empty, then you make room to be creative. So for me, inspiration is a great tool to regulate that space. Often I do a lot of playing with the idea, how do I leave the assumptions at the door? How do I call myself bullshit in order to sort of say, that was a boundary and can we rethink that construct? So I look for things around me that sort of inspire that. you know. And as we talked a little bit ago, I love to hear other people's stories, knowledge, observation, perspective. So I seek it everywhere I go. I'm I'm obsessed about it. I mean, I can listen, I'm listening to 10 podcasts all at the same time. I'm reading five books all at the same time. I'm looking to content everywhere I go. I'm streaming content, you know, and it's actually soothes my dyslexia. It's almost feeding my dyslexia by getting all that ongoing stimulation, but it also keeps my curious sort of senses like, in check, you know? And often, you know, it's our clients in my team, you know, it's that I'm looking for what are the problems you're solving that are not shiny yet? Where is the truth that drives what you're doing, your innovation, your product, your relationship to your customers? And how do we find a moment that turns it into truth and make that spark grow from an idea to a strategy? To manifestation into an object, into a relationship, you know? And that pursuit for that, it just makes me give me a difficult problem to solve. And I am inspired, you know? Because it's about, at the end of the day, it's about how do we relate to each other and how do we relate to those moments that I'm looking for, you know? Because when you find them, they're just catalysts for longevity, you know, and for real meaningful outcome. Gil, where can people learn more about you, your agency, and your work? So absolutely check out our website, Gershoni.com, or on Instagram, gershoni Creative. We also have another website for DyslexicDesignThinking.com, as well as on Instagram, Dyslexic Design Thinking. Our podcast is Dyslexic Design Thinking, and you can find it anywhere you listen to content, Spotify, Apple, and beyond. And right now we're working on a beautiful art installation that's in the process of being launched. This month and primarily in October, which is Dyslexia Awareness Month in the U.S. and in the U.K., and the name of the project is Dear Dyslexia, and that project is around bringing children, adults, celebrities in all different industries to really write a postcard to their dyslexia. Choose a single word, illustrate in any medium a little postcard, and mail it back to us with your name, age, and your city, country, school. And we have an online exhibition that's going to fully come to fruition in October. We're working with Congress to have an event in D.C. to celebrate the launch of the project and the stories around this and bring the community together. We're also gonna do an event in New York, in San Francisco, and different schools, and of course, virtually. So I'm really excited about bringing this vast community locally nationally and internationally to really celebrate the gift of dyslexia and the dyslexia thinking that's so part of what we do. So those are the few places you can check out what we're doing and send us a note, let us know if you want to talk, collaborate, ideate, or just send a Dear Dyslexia postcard to us and we'll make sure to include you in the online library and a physical installation in October as well.
1: That's fantastic. Gil, thanks so much for being on the show.
0: Such a pleasure, you guys. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.